Welcome to In Any Event, the podcast about events for event planners. The podcast is brought to you by EventSquid, registration and event management software that thinks like you and works like eight of you. I'm your host, Michael Kranitz. Let's get to it. Today's guests are Drs. Nance Wilson from State University of New York in Cortland and Dr. Thomas Woolsey of The American University in Cairo, and they're co-creators of Beyond the App Cause and Conference, which strives to support teachers' professional growth and co-construction with literacy experts in a way that is probably one of the most creative that you can imagine given what's happened over the past year. Beyond the App was actually created in response to COVID as a way to instruct teachers on how to continue teaching their students literacy in an environment where there seems to be only one tool, only one hammer, which is the virtual setting. And so today we're going to explore their conference, not only how they pulled it off with the American University being located in Cairo and SUNY, of course, in New York, but also the aims of the program and how they were able to leverage technology in different ways and improve the experience of kids in elementary and middle schools experience learning literacy through this new medium. So welcome to the program, Drs. Wilson and Woolsey. You know, I stumbled through that a little bit because what you do is not, for, for me, not quite packaged And that's why you're going to tell our listeners what Beyond the App is and what the direct aim is of the program. So this is Dr. Wilson. When we think about Beyond the App, the idea came about because a lot of the professional development that was being provided to teachers at the early pandemic was not following the research of what is good professional development. They were webinars and videos where teachers were given tools and advice, but there was no opportunity for interaction or question generating or even for generating things that they could use in their classrooms. The other thing that we recognized and realized is COVID was affecting teachers not just in the U.S. and not just in Egypt, but throughout the world. And we had an opportunity to provide global connections for teachers to see education and teaching of literacy um, as a collaborative aspect, which it is, throughout the world. So that's kind of how the idea kind of started. So then we're like, all right, so we have this idea, how do we get started? And Dr. Wesley, do you want to take over with that? Sure. Once we once we had a kind of a framework for what do we want to do, instead of just sitting in a conference and watching a webinar, we wanted to put people in contact, teachers in Cairo, in Egypt, with teachers in California. And in fact, we had, I think, 12 different countries represented from Mexico to uh, where else did we have? We had China. We had a whole bunch of different countries, but primarily United States and Egypt. And we wanted them to know that they weren't alone in the things that were causing them to struggle. And we wanted them to know that the the people whose books they read, uh, that they see in webinars, are also people that they can talk and and work together with. So we ended up with uh, a number of top experts. I don't remember the number that we had, uh, but uh, folks like uh, Freddie Hebert from Text Project, 
uh, Doug Fisher, Nancy Fry, we had a whole slew of experts, but we wanted our teachers to be able to, to talk with them and not just be talked at by them. And so that was the next stage. And we began looking for opportunities. We began looking for platforms. Uh, none of us had ever done anything like this before. Uh, we began looking at our universities to say, look, this is our chance to do something for the community. Both universities stepped up. So we were uh, thrilled to see that the, the initiative took hold and so quickly. So to give the audience some context for Beyond the App, either one of you, please describe what the event is, who attends that event, and why they would be inclined to attend it. And then we'll talk about how you were able to address the content within the event and, and, the, and the things that, that spring from that. So a little bit about the event itself. So the goal with the event was to create an online conference tool that was as close to interactive as a face-to-face conference could be. When you're live with presenters in the room, that you get to talk with them and engage with them. So our presenters were literacy experts from Egypt and the U.S., and we had people who are residents of the U.S., but from other Middle Eastern countries who presented as well. The attendees were pre-service teachers, so students studying to become teachers, as well as in-service teachers from the U.S., Egypt predominantly, but we also had 10 other countries represented in China, Turkey, Mexico, I'm definitely forgetting places, I apologize, but um, so we had 12 countries represented when we went through our registrations, which kind of surprised us because we really only expected to get, you know, Egypt in the U.S. where we are located. And so it was kind of really cool to see teachers from really across the globe coming together to learn from the experts. As a practical matter, when you say face-to-face, I, th- I think most planners who are doing virtual events really are trying to strive for a nice interactive event, although some events fall short when you rely on static videos that, that are not interactive. But did you have to limit the number of attendees per session in order to get that interactivity? Yeah, so we did limit the number of attendees per session. 30 to 40 for some of the ones that were simultaneously translated into Arabic because we needed to make sure that we had enough translation, uh, translated sessions for people for whom English was not a primary language. But with that goal, not only did we have sessions with presenters, but we also tried to create sessions that occurred after the presenting sessions that to mirror those hallway conversations where you know when two people walk out of two different rooms and they're like where did you just go to what did you just go to and they share what they learned so in between our sessions we had breakout rooms or you know rooms where people came together and they shared what they just did in or learned in the prior session and that really allowed for just informal conversation to occur about the sessions and for teachers that I know of a number of people who've reached out to me and said, here, look, I have the chat where so-and-so said that I could get their email, but I lost it, you know? (laughs) Um, And they formed relationships with people that they've never met before. 
through, just like you would in a face-to-face conference, through these, I guess, what we'll call non-planned breakout. They were planned breakout, but non-scripted. Or- they were ad hoc conversations. And that's really interesting. That's the first time I've heard of that being used. And let me ask you some practical questions around that. Did you find that you had to jumpstart those conversations or did people spontaneously begin talking with one another? We assigned, uh, well, we didn't assign. We put that as a registration option so that people could uh, go to basically by the grade level they teach. Most of our participants were uh, already teaching middle grades. So kids from about nine years old to about 14 or 15, though we had some more, uh, more from both ends from high school and elementary as well. But we allowed them to select a, uh, a breakout room that uh, breakout room is probably the wrong word, but to select a group of like-minded people who were also teaching a similar grade level. And this way they were able to, to connect with each other and process what they had just done within the session as well. We really wanted to focus on doing something and put that in context, Nance uh, jumped in here too, that in face-to-face classrooms, the kind that we grew up in for the most part. You know, the teacher comes around, the teacher does something at the board, uh, the teacher comes around and and checks your work and helps you with uh, different things and maybe assigns some homework. But in the virtual world, teachers mostly haven't done a whole lot of that sort of thing, particularly not synchronously. And so they, they needed, they knew how to lecture, they knew how to provide information to set up YouTube videos that were relevant and they could say, now go do such and such a task. What they didn't know how to do was uh, scaffold the instruction for students while we do things together, the kind of things that we might call guided practice, where uh, you're going to attempt to do something, but you need a teacher to help you do that thing. And that was kind of a, a struggle and a key part for teachers making this giant pivot all of a sudden to being able to say, I know that my students need to practice with my help, but I don't know how to do that online. I want to unpack a lot of what you just said, because there are some concepts that I'm going to bookmark and we'll talk about. Last year has highlighted, at least from my perspective, I have a daughter in college, and what I saw were pre-recorded lectures where you have 40 students 50, 100 students, they check into the Zoom, the lecture starts, and they tune out. And I'm guessing this was a primary theme in your conference. How did you address this? How would you tell your instructors to to approach this issue? So I think that was the most unique part about our conference is we had experts in variety of fields of literacy talk about how do you do this when you're doing teaching vocabulary? How do you do this when you're teaching phonics or phonemic awareness? How do you do this when you're teaching comprehension? How do you do this when you're teaching writing? How do you do this when you're trying to have an anti-bias, anti-racist teaching framework? So it wasn't that we said, we recognize it's not going to be the same in every situation. So we had presenters who shared strategies of engaging with your students depending on the goal of the lessons and the goals of the students. 
which makes the breakout rooms even more valuable. So you asked, how did we, you know, make sure earlier about the limits of people in each rooms? We had a total of six sessions occurring at each time. Each presenter presented two to three times throughout the three-day conference so that people can attend different sessions and above and beyond the breakout rooms. So, you know, we really worked to make sure that we were walking the walk, that as we were saying, you need to co-construct knowledge with your students, regardless of what you're teaching, we made sure that our presenters said to the teachers, hey, this is what I'm going to talk about, and then spend the second half hour. Now, let's talk about what this will look like in a classroom. Tell me about where you're teaching, and tell me... So the second half of the sessions were predominantly about the, how do I now co-construct with the attendees and the attendees co-construct together. So using the tools du jour, you're able to improve the efficacy of their teaching through your program. Can you give us maybe a couple of tidbits? Because I think they translate over into ordinary events where you have presenters who are talking to an audience of adults and trying to convey certain points, I'm sure they're applicable. Yeah, they have so much screen time that the teacher needs to be more than an entertainer, but they also need to, to achieve the, the learning objectives. Uh, one of our presenters, for example, worked uh, with, has been working with distance learning for quite a while. I actually worked with him early on when he set up a charter school in San Diego. And uh, we worked using computers and technology, not just for remote instruction, but for useful instruction in, in uh, the regular class, the regular school environment. We wanted the tools to be useful, not just a tool because it's cool. Uh, it needed to be more than that. And so we, we uh, worked with, this was actually Doug Fisher, who was one of the early ones. We, we put out some feeders to see who would be interested. And our email boxes were just uh, message bombed with uh, the people we approached. Yes, 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 this is needed. Uh, Doug was one of the very early ones. And he, he talked, for example, uh, initially about how you provide feedback to students online. If I'm walking around the classroom, I can say, you know, hey, uh, Nance, uh, you need to maybe do this when you're introducing your paragraph. And uh, I think you've done a really fantastic job of using an anecdote here in your essay. Those sorts of things, but it's much harder to do if you don't know how to use the tools and if you are making a huge pivot to a virtual classroom that is a you know such a steep learning curve for most teachers, not that they didn't want to, not that they couldn't, uh, but that they had to do it suddenly. How would you attack the problem of the instructor walking around, noticing something on somebody's paper and saying, hey, you did this well here, or even they reviewed the paper beforehand and want to provide that individual feedback. How do you do that in the virtual environment now? Or is it any different, really? For, yeah, I was going to talk about that. But for the writing situation, Doug talks about, Fisher talks about using breakout rooms and using them purposefully. So, you know, students might be in breakout rooms doing peer editing and the teacher comes in and then responds to their writing. So it's a synchronous, like as if they were in the classroom and the teacher's popping in and out of breakout rooms to support the students as they're working. And so the students can get some real-time feedback while they're collaborating with their peers. My colleague, Vicki Cardulo, 
talked about using a tool like Slack, which is free and businesses use, but it's also, you know, Microsoft Teams is similar. So, you know, there's a, for running discussion groups for literature circles. So students can actually have small group discussions about their readings. I use a tool called Perusal, but there's also a tool within Google Classroom called Cami that allow for asynchronous and or synchronous annotation of readings during the reading process. So you could actually get into what the, the reader is thinking during reading. And depending on the tool, Hypothesis is another tool for it. So you ask, did they have to get another tool? We'd be like, no, there's like six tools that do this. This is the tool that I'll show you, but it's not about the tool. It's about figuring out how can understanding when a reader's comprehension breaks down. So social annotation allows me to look and watch as my students are reading to see when their understanding breaks down rather than waiting for them to write a summary essay at the end. And I can respond when their reading breaks down versus after they think they've understood it all and they read an essay that's completely off. Um, and hypothesis allows for some of the similar things. So there, there's, there's lots of other ways to use those tools, but it's about leveraging the technology that's out there to think about, well, what could this do for me that would be better and or different and allow me to have similar quality practices that I had in the face-to-face -face setting. Have you gotten feedback since the event from instructors who have benefited from what they learned at the event? We, we had a lot of feedback from, I mean, just the casual on the side feedback that uh, even that I, I've gotten some of our novice teachers who are in our graduate program at SUNY Cortland attended the conference. And um, now I'm, I was on sabbatical in the fall, but now I'm teaching a class and they're like, you know, I used that thing I learned in your conference this fall in my class. So we've gotten anecdotal things like that, but we've also gotten formal responses from like Educate Me, which um, is a uh, nonprofit education group in Egypt that works with teachers in schools saying like, yes, let's partner again. This was great for our teachers. We've gotten feedback and support from individuals not who aren't students or practicing teachers. I think uh, at least since the event, at least once a month, I, I've gotten a rant, what I'll call a random email, you know, <laughs> where somebody will say something and you'll be like, oh, cool. Thanks for taking the time to email me. You know, right after the event, I got lots of emails. Now it's kind of like petering out, but yeah. Do, do you see this as an enduring change or do you think given the opportunity to go back to in-person, everybody will run back to in-person? I think that that's an interesting question because uh, I believe that, you know, before teachers may use technology, some people have experienced different types of online learning, asynchronous types of learning where you use a discussion board over a period of time, but now almost no teacher has zero experience with online learning. Some have a little more, some have a little less, depending on things like bandwidth, which has been a problem here in Egypt, access to tech and so on. But, but almost everybody now has some experience and they, they know what they can do, they know what they need to know, or they know what they, they still need to be able to develop to uh, do it nice 
in a nice way and in an effective way. And I think that there will be there will be greater use of online technology for instruction, not just because it's cost effective, which so often and unfortunately has been the case in the past, but because now we have seen how we can bring people together, how we can help students to at, at all levels, at all levels to uh, actually learn effectively where before it might have been, well, I don't know if I can do that on uh, online. It has to be face-to-face. -face. So people will, yeah, want to go back to class. They're going to want to go back to their, their campuses and their classrooms, but they're also going to say, we need to keep exploring how this can bring people together, how we can learn online with each other. I also think that, you know, in not all, but in some classrooms prior to the pandemic, technology was used as an add-on. Like, okay, instead of handwriting all your papers, now you'll type your papers. That doesn't necessarily change what kind of writer you are. It just changes the modality of the writing. And I think that what many teachers see is that we can use some forms of technology to leverage our teaching and our student learning to actually have more individual feedback for students. Like I, I can pop into a kid's and, and you have a child in college, I have a child in college, I teach at college, but we can pop into a kid's paper in process, you know, if they share it with us mm -hmm. and give them feedback as they're writing, you know, maybe synchronously, maybe not synchronously, that's really powerful, but also we can go in and before I'm one person, I could not hear five groups of students having a conversation about a book, but with tools that Slack or Teams or other, you know, collaborative grouping tools such as that, even Edmodo and school, you know, tools such as that, I can go in and I could actually watch the group as they're having their conversation, even if it's print-based, and see what's happening for all the groups, not just some. And what I hear now is a bright line distinction between delivery platforms and supplementary technological platforms that like you described that assist or, or actually accentuate your ability to teach because everybody is pretty much focused currently. And I say everybody, planners certainly are on that streaming platform. How do we connect the people? And what you're illuminating is that, oh, no, 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 it's beyond that, hence your name. And there are some great collaboration tools that change the way learning occurs. And you're just bringing it back to my original point, which is, you know, the, the whole teacher in front of a classroom model maybe is seeing an evolutionary progression right now that's been accelerated by the pandemic, but is, is in fact enduring and should endure, much as the magic whiteboard that I saw when my kids were in elementary school that I wish I had, uh, had, you know, it seems basic and rudimentary now com compared to, to some of the things we're, we are seeing and what you've mentioned. Mike, I, I want to add to that just please. a bit is because to function in the current world, students need digital literacy skills and strategies. They need to know how to be digital citizens. They need to know how to engage online. They need to know that there's different strategies that we might reuse when we're reading multiple texts. 
I had a student just respond something I was reading in the last week who said, you know, when I was reading before I read all these articles online, I didn't realize how much I had to synthesize. Like when you're doing research, even if you're just trying to buy a pair of shoes, how many of us have gone to like three websites to find that pair of shoes at the right price? Are they really comfortable? What are the ratings? You know, we look at all of those things. Those are literacy skills. That is absolutely fascinating. It combines critical thinking with resourcing, judging credibility, and, and goes far beyond the shoes into the news, right? <laughs> and, and wow, that's a mind blower because I think of English lit, but I've never th thought of dig lit before, but that's a thing, I guess. Yeah, you, and, we have to, uh, to be, you know, with all of the things of the past uh, few years, we, we really need to be able to, to help students to not just be consumers of the technology, but to be literate about what the technology can do, what, what its affordances, we, we use that term a lot. What can the technology do that's useful to us and what may be a misuse or misapplication in some cases. Can we have a program for adults, please? I think that's a good idea. <laughs> I do too. So we have to, like, so our goal for the conference was to help teachers think about beyond the app, like preparing good instruction for their students using digital tools. But these digital tools aren't going away. In fact, they are expanding and growing and there's new digital tools. I, who can keep up? I don't, there's magazine after magazine that, you know, of groups that are trying to share all the new digital resources out there. So there's the side of giving the teachers what they need so that they can do the best for their students. But there's also the skills and strategies that students need so that as the tools keep changing, as the tech keep changing, they are critical consumers, but also producers of new everything, new tech, new words, new products. Multi I mean, yeah, there's a lot. Do, do you see any local or state governments moving in a direction to make guidelines like you present in your group more the norm, really starting to, you know, merge this into the mainstream, or is it too premature? No, there are state standards and, you know, the Common Core standards hit on digital literacy, and New York State has computer and literacy standards. I won't speak for Egypt, but there are standards, but standards are static documents. And, you know, there are things where you think about, it's like a checklist in some ways. So what we really need to make sure is that we provide teachers not just with the standards, but the ways that they can help achieve those standards to do what's best for their students. When you look at the adoption curve in any given locality, state, or country, it does help when you've got the force of the government behind that effort, even if that effort is not created by bureaucrats, but it's created by professionals like you. It does seem like something that needs to happen sooner rather than later, uh, because I feel like there's a little bit of a runaway train with technology is evolving so quickly, uh, exponentially, that we struggle to keep up. We're always, you know, a year, years and decades behind what we create. And, mm -hmm. and that's the part, and I'm sure you feel this urgency. Describe for me what efforts, if any, you guys have engaged in 
in trying to, beyond your event, of course, in trying to really get this into mainstream thinking in education? I think it's a critical mass kind of a question. We need to be more agile. Uh, you mentioned that very often we in education and business and probably a lot of other uh, sectors, we develop new technologies, but we don't figure out quickly enough how they can be used. We don't understand what their affordances are, what their limitations are. And uh, instead, we're just ready to hop on the next Android version of the phone, not because it's going to do something better, but because it's what's next. And so I think that the critical mass is that we get uh, a number of teachers and educators, professional educators, university level and uh, school districts and so on, and that as they call them here. And now we've got this many people, but here's what happened. Going back to the conference specific. Now we have people in Greece who say, hey, wait, us, us, pick us, pick us. And we have people in Guatemala who said, well, look, you did this multilingual event in Arabic and in English. Can't you do that in Spanish too? And so what we're getting getting is from our various contacts around the world is this is needed and that critical mass is going to just become a balloon hopefully and, when it doesn't pop that's right and 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 maybe productizing it a little bit right so that it's portable and yeah, can be shifted yeah. from country to country i'm not saying to standardize it or make it static i'm just saying to make it portable and which leads me to my next question and that is when is the next event? And when you put these on, how do you support them? Are they sponsor supported? Do people pay to attend? Tell me a little bit about the next event. So we're hoping to do another conference in early November of next year. But right now we're looking for sponsors. We were fortunate enough for the first event that both of our institutions stepped up equally and funded everything from the conference management software to Zoom to making sure that we could hire for a whole three weeks a conference manager to assist us at the last minute and, you know, preparing all our speakers, you know, and a lot of tools. But to really scale it up, we need to make sure that we have more tools and more funds. So at this point, we are busily writing letters and searching for grants to help us take that next step because there are teachers who want this. And as technology has taught us, our world has shrunk. Dr. Mosley and I communicate almost every other day between WhatsApp and, you know, other meetings and writing and whatever. And, you know, he's on the other side of the globe from where I am. I, you know, I'm sitting, he's sitting in the desert and I'm sitting here surrounded by, I think it's currently melting, but at least three feet of snow or four feet of snow that's melting in upstate New York. So the world has shrunk and our teachers can build relationships with each other to make education better for all kids in a global society. If somebody wanted to help or support your effort because they're behind it, where, where would they go? We have a website beyondtheappliteracy.com. Uh, there you can find our contact information. Mine is thomas.wolsey with one O at aucegypt.edu. Mine is nance.wilson at courtland.edu. Very good. And then we have beyondtheapp at courtland.edu also. So there's lots of ways. Correct. 
The work you guys are doing is tremendous. It's creative. It's thoughtful. And I'm, I'm very glad that you've agreed to participate on our show. And I encourage our listeners to please reach out to beyondtheappliteracy.com if you have any interest in fostering the growth and integration of this kind of thinking into our educational system. Uh, Doctors Wolsey and Wilson, I do thank you today for joining us and hope, wish you great success in your program coming up in the future. Thank you so much to you and thank the you. Uh, Event Squid team as well. You've, uh, we, we couldn't have done this actually without you. So, <laughs> Thank you very much. In Any Event is brought to you by Event Squid. If you're running a conference, meeting, training, or any other type of event, visit eventsquid.com and learn more about how our software can help you manage everything from registration to virtual event organization. EventSquid. Thinks like you, works like eight of you. Please join us for our next podcast. And if you know of a guest we should have on, pop over to eventsquid.com, click the podcast menu item, and submit your suggestion. We'll see you next time.